Hey, thanks for listening. Joe Roder here with the Mend Podcast and Red's Fly Shop. I'm doing two things brave today. I am actually going to record this uh, in the upstairs of the fly shop. So it's legit, but it might be a little noisy in the background. And the other thing I'm going to do is I am going to take your questions on Facebook. Which, if you're listening to this, it was too late. I just did a Facebook post a little bit ago, and I've seen about five or six questions so far, uh, and only one stupid one. Uh, you may or may not know who you are. Uh, anyway, lots happened since the last podcast. Uh, gosh, I can't believe it's been two months, but what happened was something called uh, the fall, which involves crap ton of deer hunting, steelhead fishing, trout fishing, bird hunting, kids are back in school, just all sorts of stuff. But here I am, I'm back, ready to untangle your messes uh, and help you out with some of the questions that you got. So a couple of things to touch on uh, before I get down to the nitty-gritty technical stuff, and that is I got a chance to go to Washington, D.C. in November and advocate, uh, I hate to use the term lobby, because that's just, it's got a stigma, it sounds uh, dirty and people just picture coats and ties and uh, people getting paid to argue for stuff uh, they don't even care about. Uh, I was an advocate is the term I'd like to use. So I was invited to team up with a couple of organizations that uh, invited me and said, hey, we, we really want to get behind this with you because they had seen that it was important to Reds, important to fly fishing. And I was certainly vocal about the Land and Water Conservation Fund, uh, which is one of the biggest success stories in the history of legislating conservation in the U.S., at least as it pertains to funding. Because it costs the taxpayer zero dollars, and it has funded literally tens of thousands of projects uh, to enhance outdoor recreation, anywhere from uh building uh, a new boat launch access so we can put our drift boats in the river all the way to uh, a baseball field uh, to get kids outside and off the streets. So the LWCF is known as just an awesome fund. It's really great. It expired in 2017, and we'd like to get that renewed and fully funded. And if you're listening to this, don't be a slacker. Go to backcountryhuntersandanglers.org and Click on the Take Action button for the LWCF. It's on there somewhere. And they will put you in contact with your state representatives and senators and let them know this is important. Uh, It has unanimous bipartisan support, but what it's lacking right now is people to just speak up and say, hey, this is important to get this renewal signed into law, and let's get this done. Because they've been talking about it for too long. It's not controversial. We may or may not talk politics on this podcast. I'm not sure uh, yet. But support the LWCF. Awesome fun. Uh, Very, very important. Look into it. I think you'll you'll be shocked at the outreach this thing has had with very few people paying attention to it until its uh, date of expiration. So I got invited by the Wilderness Society and the Nature Conservancy to join them. And what was so cool about, I'd never been to Washington, D.C., never been a part of anything like this. But what was so cool about it was to go there and sit side by side with these organizations that may or may not necessarily have sporting, aligned sporting values. Because I'm horribly paranoid of anti-hunting, anti-fishing agendas. I am pro-meat, I'm pro-fishing, I'm pro-public land. Pro-healthy landscapes and environment, uh, but I'm a little paranoid at times uh, for that. But I, with no evidence, no substantiated evidence that there's a conspiracy out to get us or not. Uh, but to be able to sit with those groups and hear both uh, fishing, uh, namely fly fishing, and hunting uh, discussed is a critical, or these these public land resources that we're trying to not only save preserve but enhance access to uh, and consolidate public holdings that become more useful all that kind of stuff but to hear hunting and fishing discussed in every conversation regarding the LWCF was really encouraging so 
that was awesome. Felt like it was successful. Go to backcountryhuntersandanglers.org. Take action. Uh, they've got a, the, their, their tech people have set it up really well so you can make the phone calls are the most important, but at least uh, get the email sent in and do that. But phone calls are great, uh, and they make a difference. Um, anyway, the other thing, uh, kind of interesting that happened, uh, there was a, a bill passed um, that is going to make it easier to control sea lion populations. So I don't think anybody's a big fan of shooting sea lions or killing sea lions. Um, but just recently, uh, Congress approved the bill um, to allow the killing of sea lions. It makes it a little bit easier. Uh, I read some statistic uh, regarding this about the percentage of spring Chinook salmon in the Columbia River that sea lions had consumed during the last run which was already uh, somewhat dismal uh, to begin with. Uh, but the sea lions have dramatically increased from 30,000, I'm reading this uh, on NBC News right now, from a population of 30,000 in the 1960s to 300,000 following an act of the 1972 Marine Mammal Protection Act. So anyway, that's... I suppose good news for our salmon and steelhead runs, so that's cool. Uh, I'm happy that we're going to do something to control the populations of those because there's a lot of effort being put into save fish, um, and uh, so hopefully, uh, hopefully some good comes of that. Our salmon and steelhead runs on the Columbia have been a bit meager uh, recently, in case you haven't heard. Uh, didn't stop us from having a good steelhead season though. There was less anglers, so more fish for the anglers that showed up, which is great. And, uh, and then part of my excuse for two-month lapse of the podcast is I had a killer uh, mule deer hunting trip to Montana. Went to the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument. Just oodles of great public space, BLM land uh, in north-central Montana. Did a five-day, five-night solo hunt in single-digit temperatures. Slept in my two-man backpacking tent and took a beautiful 4 by 4 muley and uh, made meatballs out of that thing a couple nights ago with the kids. So had a great hunting season, uh, but now I'm kind of wrapped up doing that. Fished my brains out as much as I could in November, and now I'm back to podcasting and taking care of social media and web stuff for the winter until it's off to Patagonia next month. So that's the state of affairs. All right. So on to your questions here. So... uh, one question is, when do I quit? Ha ha. Thanks, Taylor, Gordon. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, so the first question uh, is, I'm going to start at the bottom here, and I'm going to have kind of a winter emphasis on this, but one question is, how have flies that Yakima trout changed recently? And I can kind of touch on this uh, in general regarding trout flies, and it's and, and I just, I responded and said, okay, evolution of fly selection. If you don't like or follow us on Facebook, if you do nothing else on Facebook, follow us. We actually utilize it because it's mobile friendly and we can do stuff from a field. Um, and, uh, and we can do some stuff on there we can't do on Instagram either. So follow us on Facebook. But regarding fly selection, it, it's a funny thing because I... I can't explain it why certain patterns get hot for a period of a couple of years and then even though there's different trout, you know, because a trout's life cycle runs at kind of a maximum lifespan of about six years, um, based on the knowledge I have out here on the Yakima, that you would think that that would kind of cycle out and, you know, that fly wouldn't have a, a hot streak for a couple of seasons. Now, of course, there's patterns that, you know, have been working for decade after decade after decade. But there's some that, yeah, they they are kind of hot for a period of time. Um, I would say flies that Yakima trout changed recently. Um, you know, historically, I've been fishing here since 2000. I started, you know, when I was a sophomore in college, uh, started guiding and uh, kind of took it head on and, and fished, you know, the river in you know, 100 plus days every year since then, you know, 200 days some years. Uh, but I would just say uh, definitely... Your, your fly selection in it, kind of the realism of it, has definitely had to, had to improve. Um, I remember fishing big beadhead Kaufman stonefly nymphs, you know, big brass beads on stonefly nymphs. 
uh, for years, and that was incredibly effective. You had to have what we just call it a K-stone for short. And uh, over time, you know, larger patterns have had to become more natural and more natural and more natural because we have definitely had an increase in fishing pressure. There's no doubt about it. Now, our biological data supports that we have increased fish populations. Uh, so catch and release angling hasn't necessarily had a negative impact on the population, but it has made it a little bit more technical as far as fly selection goes. I would say overall the dry fly fishing is more challenging. Uh, and uh, I definitely see at the front, this, this question is going to be cut up in so many different uh, arenas, but... I definitely see it. The the nymph game has gotten more technical from the fact that you need real nymph, you know, realistic colored stonefly nymphs, pat stones, jimmy legs, uh, twenty incher stones. Those are probably the most popular stoneflies that we fish. Uh, you know, large gold bead headed nymphs don't typically work nearly as well as they used to. But you still need the density uh, on your nymph selection so that the fly acts natural in the heavy currents that we have so it doesn't get washed around in the current. If you think about just how uh, an unweighted or a light fly will get whipped around in the current just based on its lack of density, it's not going to act very natural when tied to a piece of tippet. Something that has some, some negative density to it and is heavy, now the fly can control the tippet and it looks more natural. So flies with black beads, faceted tungsten beads, uh, off-colored um, like jig head beads, which are often tungsten, I, I think are superior, whereas uh, in years past, um, you know, brighter brass beads seem to be equally effective. And that's not to say that gold beads don't work, but I tend to have more success on silver beads most of the time here, specifically on, our, on the Yakima River, which is where this question was centered. But I think a lot of these strategies will you know, can be employed anywhere in the country. Regarding dry flies, uh, I would say the same thing. Uh, you know, the, the chubby Chernobyl, I'll just say the chubby Chernobyl genre, which started about seven or eight years ago, uh, you know, where people began to fish. You know, the problem with Chernobyl ants for a long time is you couldn't really buy good ones that had really symmetrical legs and a good profile and floated upright every time. And, and, uh, the chubby Chernobyl really began to get consistently mass-produced with big white puffy wings. It always rolls over upright. It's very symmetrical on the water. Uh, the leg length, the balance, and the leg flexibility was all just right, whereas we had to tie those for uh, quite some time. The chubby Chernobyl reign, uh, I wouldn't say it's over, but at the beginning of a stonefly hatch, that fly can work extremely well, and the fish aren't hard to fool and they're pretty dumb right at the onset of a stonefly hatch. At the beginning of the golden stones, a big uh, kind of orangish, yellow-colored, or gold chubby Chernobyl is going to be quite effective for the first week or so. You're going to catch fish on it, and then it's going to fade, and the fish are going to get much, much more selective. So it's not from a year-to-year -year standpoint sometimes that fly selection can change, but it's how deep you get into the hatch and how much pressure that they've had. I don't fish a lot of the traditional chubby Chernobyls for my large dry fly attractors. I tend to fish more natural patterns and have kind of evolved to that over the years. Um, as far as a lot of the basic stuff, uh, as far as, you know, small dry flies, I still fish a lot of split wing atoms, blue wing olive parachutes. Uh, Hatch-based bugs really aren't going to change um, something that you're actually imitating a specific small insect with a dry fly. Um, that stuff doesn't necessarily change um, because we're imitating an insect. So uh, if, let me give you a couple of examples. So stuff that doesn't change over the years, you know, a parachute PMD is always going to imitate a PMD quite well. Uh, you know, a sparkle done of various size and colors is always going imi to imitate, uh, you know, a various mayfly in the appropriate size and color over the year. The small stuff, especially the dry flies, doesn't change that much. Fish don't actually see that well, and that's why you can have uh, a fly with a hook hanging out the bottom and a string attached to it, and they'll still eat it. So when it comes to stuff that's size 12 on down, a lot of the classic patterns are fantastic. And feather and hair are age-old materials, and they're the best materials to represent small dry flies. So there are some great patterns that you know emerge over... Uh, over time, and uh, 
I was going to make a really terrible pun based on the term emerger. Um, you see what I did there? Uh, but there are a lot of patterns that emerge over time and prove themselves. There are new ideas that prove themselves to be effective, like a purple haze is a great attractor to fish when there's a variety of small flies on the water. Um, it looks like a rare and unique opportunity for a trout to sample something. Uh, it helps make distinguish your bug possibly from other ones in the hatch. But dry, small dry flies haven't changed much. Uh, nymphs certainly have. Uh, in general, on, the, on our home river and probably a lot of the, the rivers that are fished, you know, I'm going to say the Yakima's fished heavily. It's not, it's nothing like you go to the Yellowstone area, especially the Madison. We don't have a quarter or a fifth, maybe even a tenth of fishing pressure of the Madison. Uh, but our nymphs definitely uh, have had to get a little bit um, more specific. We fish a lot of jig head stuff that will bounce off the rocks, look very, very natural, um, float very consistently uh, on, you know, with the hook up and, uh, and fish very stable in the water due to the fact that it's tungsten. And uh, when it comes to small stuff like midges and WD-40s, which we fish a lot during the wintertime, I tend to find black beads and silver beads are more effective. Um, so, and then regarding streamers, just over the years I can remember fishing a lot of streamers that were big and obnoxious and had a lot of bright colors and, and kind of unique colors. Uh, we, there was one called a JJ bugger that when I first started guiding and, and then for a period of years after it, that was the big fish slayer i mean that you had to have that streamer you weren't going to be effective to be quite honest with you and now it, i'm going to say it doesn't work but it's not nearly as effective as it used to be and we're fishing for completely different fish that was like 15 plus years ago so i can't explain that part but i do know that regarding streamers um i fish almost exclusively olives uh on this river i'll fish blacks at times uh but is when it comes to streamer selection, the more that streamer looks like either a sculpin uh, during the wintertime, salmon fry in the spring tend to be uh, a little bit more prevalent. Streamers really have to be extremely natural. I don't fish a lot of crazy purple stuff, bright orange stuff, bright yellow stuff. I fish primarily olives, blacks, and nature tones. So um, anyway, that's you know how I've seen fly selection evolve over the years. Definitely a lot more natural than it used to be. It's not quite as easy as it used to be, but all in all, 90% of its presentation, learn how to present a fly better, learn how to cast better, uh, learn how to hunt fish, stock fish, and if your goal is to catch a big fish, do it on your first cast in a spot. Don't try to do it on your third cast, because big fish especially are best caught on that in that very first presentation. So anyway, there's our first question. Uh, I got another question here uh, from Matt. Uh, Matt says, ESN, winter month specifically. What is your take on smaller is better when it comes to nymphs and tippet? I've read that in some situations, larger pattern, 12 to 16 is the ticket. Ever experienced this? Sure have, Matt. Um, and I... I can talk about this from a Euro-nymphing standpoint, which I think is great, but nymphs are nymphs. Um, so if the fish are feeding on them and the nymph works, let's just go ahead and apply this to, to indicator, uh, to the dirty, dirty indicator fishermen as well, which I am one of about half the time, all the time when I'm guiding. Uh, so bigger can be better in the winter because uh, the way fish feed, there's kind of two schools of thought in the winter. Uh, a lot of times during the winter, those fish lay fairly dormant, and you you want something big enough to motivate them to recognize, hey, that's a rare and unique opportunity. I'm going to go ahead and eat that because I may not get another opportunity at a larger bug like that again today or in the next several days. So... That can be either a large stone nymph or, in this situation, he's talking about just a generally a larger pattern, uh, which I consider 12 to 16 kind of on the smaller end of things for a river like this. Uh, in a spring creek, that would be maybe a larger pattern. But there's two schools of thought. You fish big enough to motivate the fish to move, or you fish small enough in very captive audiences, like your very best pool, for instance, where you know for a fact there to be fish laying there, that's when I would typically downsize, and I'm going to target fish I know there to be there. So I'm, I'm isolating a captive audience, fishing over that captive audience with smaller bugs, trying to hit them on the nose, 
And by pure fact that that fish is going to eat a large quantity of those really little bugs, I've given myself favorable odds. If I'm less familiar with the river or terrain, I may opt to fish larger flies, which for me that might be in the winter, that might be a number six or even a number eight stonefly nymph. And I'm going to be prospecting and moving quite a bit. And I'm less familiar. I don't know exactly where they're holding. A lot of the, and, and I might do that in the fringe times as well. I might do that in the mornings and in, in midday in the winter when I'm still trying to figure out where are they laying, are they biting yet. I might prospect with larger flies at that time. So I don't know if this question is necessarily applied to the river where our uh, resort shop is, but think about prospecting using larger flies when you have a captive audience or you hook a couple of fish in a specific spot in the wintertime, fish will tend to be grouped up or potted up. I think it's partially because there's a lot of springs or interflow in rivers and in the wintertime they want to sit over those those water sources because they offer a consistent and uniform water temperature. Maybe it's warmer. Hell, I don't know. I've never been underwater there to feel it, but they tend to group up and sit over those water sources. So once you identify those, think about downsizing. There's probably more fish down there in that group. Um, next question I got. Um, we got Les. Les wants to know just about walking away in the Yakima. He's had no success in nymphing. He's considering switching to streamers. Please discuss the pros and cons between each method how to decide which one to do according to weather and water conditions. All right, that's a good question. Uh, so you get a couple of choices. You're going to head into the river. It's wintertime. We're not fishing dry flies much unless we see fish feeding on midge, which happens. You're either going to fish a streamer or you're going to fish a nymph. So if... Okay, it depends a little bit. I'll just talk specifically about... Yeah, let me talk about this first. Number one, you know, Les, once you develop some success and, you know, you, we can take the skunk flag down and we've, we've got a bent rod a few times and we've got a little success, we're going to fish the methodology that we enjoy the, the angling component or the pursuit component most. If we prefer swinging streamers and we want to fish on a tight line then we do that. If we like the game of nymphing and figuring out what depth they're at and what fly they're at and what water speed they're at, and we really want to hone in on them and possibly catch more fish, then we're going to nymph. So let's think about how we enjoy fishing first, and then let's do the strategy that that lends itself to let's do the strategy that lends itself to our our goals or interests. So because you can catch fish on both. Um, it, it's very seldom that one is completely dead and the other is, you know, very productive. Usually, they're they're going to be there's going to be opportunities for each. So, let's talk first about streamer fishing. So, the pro to streamer fishing is that you can catch some larger fish. Um, we're targeting um, typically targeting fish that are going to eat other fish. Therefore, we're targeting the larger trout in the population. We're probably talking about catching a few less, although that's not always true. Uh, some days you will have great numbers. So we could prospect a little bit more, maybe move a little bit more, and I might do this on days where I'm out in the morning-ish, mid-morning time frame. I, I don't go out early in the morning in the winter. Who am I kidding? Everything's going to be mid-morning or midday. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. Don't go out till about 11. Uh, fish like 11 to 3.30 or 4. Uh, so like say I'm just getting out there, I'm just getting started, I'm probably going to start out swinging streamers. Uh, the midge are going to get more active in the middle of the afternoon. Most times you're going to see midge on a typical winter day. They're really little itty bitty guys. And although you might not be fishing a number 24 midge, it's going to activate the trout's interest in feeding on smaller nymphs. So I've, I've made the decision, hey, I'm going to go ahead and streamer fish. And I'm going to use a sink tip line of some sort. Uh, it really doesn't, I don't want to say it doesn't matter what you use, but there's lots of different ways to skin that cat. But most often I'm going to use like an OPST 12 foot bucket or a run sink tip uh, connected to some type of micro skagit line. You can get yourself a single handed line 
for your uh, single-handed spay line, you could throw a, a Versa leader on the end of your regular five-weight floating line. As you streamer fish more and more, you may want to develop or, or accumulate some better gear specifically to streamer fishing. But I'm going to fish either a single-handed spay line or a, a trout spay rod if I'm going to streamer fish. But you could use your single-hand five-weight with a Versa leader. It works. So I like a 10 to 12 foot leader that's going to sink anywhere from, you know, a minimum of four to about seven inches per second. Uh, the ultimate wintertime streamer fishing line, in my opinion, is the uh, Scientific Anglers Spay Light Intermediate. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole and start talking too much about lines, but that would be the one that I prefer for winter fishing. SA Spay Light Skagit Intermediate. The whole head sinks, you get slow and low. Throw a 12-foot OPST uh, run or yeah, run tip on the end of that thing, and you're happening. Anyway, so I'm going to set my sink tip up. I'm going to fish very natural colored sculpin flies, Sculpzilla number eight, uh, Dalai Lamas are great, black and olive Dalai Lama. I typically pull the flashy stuff off of that, do that before you get to the river because it's easy for that stuff to wind up in the water and litter. But I tend to take the flashy stuff off those Dalai Lama patterns. We've got another one uh, called a Mini Loop Sculpin that's just a killer. Uh, and a bunch of other Sculpin. You can get them at redsflyfishing.com. Yes, go there and buy some stuff. Uh, but I'm going to fish very natural colored Sculpin patterns. I'm going to throw about 90 degrees out to the curb most of the time. Give it a big upstream mend. Let my fly sink. And I'm going to swing that through water moving about a fast walking speed at the heads of the bigger pools. And then I'm going to take about two steps down after each swing. You can do that with a single-handed rod, switch rod, whatever. Um, just need a sink tip and a sculpin pattern. I'm going to try to get that fly to swing pretty slow, and most of the time uh, that it's broadside to me, I'm letting it sink, and then it's going to kind of 45 across on a real slow swing, and then I will give it some methodical and rhythmic jigs, little tiny you know, snap jigs straight up and down with my rod tip. So, I'm going to go ahead and prospect uh, with my sink tip uh, in the front half of the day. Uh, and then what I'm going to typically do most of the time is I'm going to switch over to nymphin. I'm going to use a variety of different zebra midges, olives, reds, blacks. And I'm going to run a two-fly setup either with a stonefly nymph for weight or a tungsten jig head nymph for weight, like a number 12 tungsten jig head. I'm going to run that in the winter. Uh, if I were fishing for money and it wasn't a one-fly contest, I'm using 5X tippet for my main line, all the way from a New Zealand-style yarn or wool indicator all the way to my main fly, and, uh, and then I'm running 6X to my small fly. Now, I don't want to get too into the details, but you can run your heavy fly on the bottom, or you can run your heavy fly on the top. I've started evolving towards running my heavy fly uh, on the bottom and my lighter fly a little bit higher tied off the main line in a split yoke system. I could talk about that for like 20 minutes, so let's just kind of leave it at that. But less, I'm going to focus on walking speed water where I can't quite see the bottom, but I know it's there. I want to fish exclusively edges and ledges. Drift control is absolutely paramount. Slow, controlled drifts, okay? So super slow, super controlled, be patient. Uh, when it comes to like comparing indicator fishing and Euro nymphing, uh, in the wintertime, there's, there's a lot to be said on big rivers for indicator fishing because you can get out there and you can feed line and run longer drifts into the, into the wider tailouts and bigger areas of the pool. So uh, I will just add that little comment that don't feel like you're missing, completely missing out on the nymph fishing if you're not doing the Euro thing because that, that's not true. In the wintertime, there's something to be said for indicator fishing. I, I run in a little yarn indicator on my Echo Shadow 2 10-foot 2 weight quite a bit and I love that rod for a light indicator rod. And I fished that Sage ESN 10-foot 2 weight recently and that thing's absolutely killer. Um, I'd like one of those for a high-end Euro rod. That Sage ESN 2 is fantastic. So um, walking speed waterless, uh, go slow, drift control, perfect drifts and take quiet steps. 
a lot of times you're going to be standing in the same spot for a while, so don't be making a lot of noise. You know, you don't want to you don't want to blow the hole out. And I'm going to catch a lot of fish that aren't very far away from me. I'm going to kind of tiptoe my weight in there and figure out exactly where that ledge is, and then I might vary my indicator depth anywhere from three feet to six feet depending on where I'm getting bites. And once you start hooking a few fish, stay on that spot. Absolutely stay on that spot. So hopefully that pretty well uh, covers Les's question. And uh, let's keep going down here. All right, we get a question about whitefish. I'll be honest, uh, I don't know how the hell to catch whitefish right now. I believe we had some kind of major whitefish kill. Uh, I'm just going totally off speculation. Don't be calling me into Department of Fish and Wildlife saying, hey, this guy said there was a whitefish kill. But we have not been catching hardly any whitefish for the last year or so. Um, I don't know if they died last winter when we had a major, major ice up, or excuse me, winter before last, we had a major, major ice up. But our whitefish population is definitely down at the dumps. Um, and they're a welcome bycatch. Um, the guides, they're fine. I mean, guides like them. Uh, we got no issue with whitefish. Uh, they, they make a slow day better for us. But in general, um, you know, when I have been able to, to scratch out a few whitefish recently is fishing the tailouts um, and fishing. They actually really like big flashy nymphs, bigger beads, big prince nymphs, number 10 prince nymphs, number 12 prince nymphs uh, fished in the tailouts um, seem to be very effective for whitefish. And we should be like right in the middle of peak whitefish time right now. It's December 12th today and they're a winter spawner. And so we actually should be seeing a, an uptick in the in the catch rate on whitefish. But uh, to be honest with you, we just have not been seeing very many of them um, as of recent. So uh, anyway, I, I hope that helps. Think about tailouts. That's the end of the deep pools, not at the heads, not right in the middle of the pool, but generally the back end of the pool. Whitefish are a very hydrodynamic uh, critter. They're actually designed um, to hold in water that's moving relatively swift with very little energy expended. So whitefish, they hold in quicker currents than trout typically, or at least currents with less hydraulic structure. Um, so I hope that helps you on the whitefish thing. Uh, another question from Todd, uh, Todd Friedmar. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Todd wants to know, when floating the Yakima River in each season, what types of different conditions should you take into consideration? Weather, river flow, obstacles, etc. Uh, well, fortunately, the Yakima in one sense is, uh, is really great for floating because there is a, a good amount of public access in the canyon, uh, which is the most float-friendly for uh, what I call just do-it-yourself users. Um, so... The, we have another section called the farmland section, and uh, for anybody listening from outside the area, I just genuinely hope you get to come fish here someday, because it is such an awesome river. Uh, but in the farmland section, there isn't nearly uh, there isn't nearly as many boat launches in that area. So uh, in that section, there's not as many boat launches. It gets a little bit more technical, but you want to stay away from the farmland section either. And this question has several layers to it because there's a question about obstacles. The farmlands section has a tremendous number of log jams. And there's braided channels and lots of log jams and sweepers or strainers, whatever the hell you want to call them. There's cottonwood branches and trees and down trees hanging out in the river all over the place. So I'm not just saying this to like protect the guide's favorite section. Um, I'm saying this just because it's pain in the neck to float. There's a major portage in that section right now where if you went down there with a fiberglass boat, you'd, you'd have some struggles unless you had a couple of healthy, healthy fellows on board with you. Um, so the farmland section is a little bit more complicated due to some private property uh, implications, but the canyon, there's 19 miles of this relatively easy to float. Um, as far as, like, this is a really good question. Um, I'll point out where I see the biggest mistakes. What I see the biggest mistakes happen are somebody goes with a guide, or maybe they ask a guide or even a staff member here, we're, we're good, but we're not perfect. You're going to get different opinions from different staffers. Is people do way too long of a float 
when the water is just, say, mid-level. Mid-level for us would be, if I were to measure it in, in the volume of cubic feet per second, 2,000 to 3,000 cubic feet per Let's just say mid to low level. Let's just say it's here from 1,000 to 2,500 CFS. I'm going with that answer. Final answer. 1,000 to 2,500 cubic feet per second. I see fishermen float way too far because they did a long float with a guide one time or they came in to get a shuttle from us and the guide said, hey, I'm floating from point A to B today. It's 12 miles. And the customer says, well, heck, he's floating 12 miles. I'd like to float 12 miles. I'm going to do what the guide does. The difference is, if you're rowing your own boat, you've got a little bit more due diligence to partake in, like figuring out what fly the fish are going to want that day, figuring out where you're going to be successful. You might be way more successful anchoring your boat and fishing over boulder piles, or anchoring a boat and fishing over a ledge, or anchoring the boat and getting out of the boat and walking on a couple of rock piles or ledges so that you can slow the river down and pick over some of that tasty stuff more thoroughly. But I see the typical user in, in water conditions that are low, mid to reasonable water conditions float way too far and not spend nearly enough time picking apart water that they know there to be fish. Because these are wild trout. They're smart. They can be hard to catch. Guides, we're often fishing with, you know, we've got a beginner in the boat oftentimes. And we know we got a good fly on there. We know where the fish are holding. We know what side of the river to be on or what rock pile to be on in every section of the river. We can get away with, with throwing kind of glancing uh, glancing shots at a lot of the really tasty structure because we can get enough of those in a day to get the most aggressive trout. So as guides, we're often fishing for the most aggressive trout. It's not a good strategy for somebody rowing their own boat. <clears throat> somebody rowing their own boat, whether that's a watermaster boat, a pontoon boat, or a drift boat, a raft, whatever, somebody rowing their own boat really needs to consider slowing it down. I mean, like throwing over a, like a boulder field or rock pile, and you get a strike or two and you miss them, it happens. Think about changing flies and refishing over that spot and taking a deep breath and slowing things down and relaxing and taking your time. I don't see nearly enough people do three to five mile floats. That's a lot of water. So I'm going to do some rough math. So we got about, so let's just say five miles. I'll recommend a five mile float to people in this shop and they will look at me like I'm crazy because last time they went with the guy, they floated 10. So five times an estimated fish count of 1,400 trout, catchable trout per mile, that's 7,000 trout. So you're telling me if you go out and you float for five miles and you float by 7,000 trout, you can't put up a good day? Most people be pretty happy catching like 10 of those. So think about shorter floats when conditions are 2,500 CFS on down. Take your time, change flies once in a while, figure out what depth, and what speed, what fly they're biting on. Especially when the water conditions are cold or slightly off color. You want to go slow and you want to pick that apart. Once we start getting into higher flows, let's just say 3,000 uh, CFS to 5,000 CFS. Our river flows at roughly four to four and a half miles an hour during the summer. That's an average, it moves. So we're not doing a lot of anchoring and a lot of stopping at real high flows. And, and our river runs pretty high. It'll go up and down in the spring, but from about the end of May through about the third week of August, it's, it's controlled um, by dams uh, about 60 miles upstream from us. I don't know what the exact distance is, but it's a long ways. So it's not like a tailwater where the water's just coming out of the dam and we're fishing it. Uh, it, so it fishes like Freestone River, the trout act really wily and wild. It's not like you know going to the Missouri, for instance, where they're you know consistent hatches and consistent flows. Uh, these fish are they eat uh, terrestrial insects. They live in extremely shallow water at times. They live up underneath brush piles. It's a real wild stream. Um, anyway, during that time of year, we're typically going to fish a lot longer sections. 
and we're going to rely much more exclusively on a really skilled rower. So the mistake I make, and I'm answering Todd's question because I think he's probably a do-it-yourself floater and wants to you know, become more effective, is the rower has the most important job in the boat times 10 that time of year. Sorry, folks. Sorry, guided customers. We're going to take a little bit of the credit here. That boat has to be in a perfect position. In flows that swift and that swirly and that strong, the boat has to maintain a perfect position and be rowed very diligently parallel to the structure or the shoreline all day long. We, we can't get by with just a few dozen good drifts. We have to get hundreds and hundreds of good consistent drifts through those swift flows along the structure. So that time of year, we're thinking about longer floats. I row a skiff, and, um, and, I, and I tend to row probably a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say more aggressively, but I'm a little bit, um, I, I fish very thoroughly and very slow, uh, much more than I did uh, when I was younger. So I row pretty aggressive, and I'll say aggressive, I row pretty aggressively. I really want to pick apart the shoreline and get a lot of the other bits and pieces that the other guides are blowing past. And over the years, as I've you know gotten more experienced, I've just found that to be more effective than skipping you know the water that might be you know skipping the margin. I used to skip the marginal water and just focus on the good stuff. But when everybody's doing that, there's a lot of gaps left in that kind of that marginal or that water that you don't expect. And I tend to fish everything now. So even during a full day in the summer, I'm fishing 12 miles would be a longer float for me i used to do a lot more of that 15 to 20 mile stuff but i've cut in like five to seven miles out of my floats um to the point where a lot of other guys will have a hard time guiding with me because i will just row that boat very slow and very methodically along the shoreline to pick up a lot of fish in that marginal water that's getting overlooked so there's one of my pro tips um but during the summer we're not going to be thinking about anchoring we're going to be thinking about fishing on the move and an additional tip for that is Keep it simple, stupid. Don't run complex double nymph rigs that are deep, that tangle and snag bottom. It kills your productivity. Fish simple one-fly nymphing rigs. Fish dry flies on heavy tippet. Fish stuff that you could just keep that ball moving up the field and you don't have downtime. If you have a tangle or you break or you snag up and, and you, gotta, you, you spend 200 yards getting the boat anchored up, you lose out on a lot of really good fishing and, and frankly just a lot of good casting fun so keep it simple keep it simple stupid is my philosophy during the summertime and i'm going to do that and i'm going to fish a little bit further when the water is clear and i'm in you know good visibility conditions when the water's cold and dirty and a little bit lower i'm going to slow it up i've spent a lot of days guiding full days in lower water conditions and in the winter in a three mile section in fact a lot of times three miles, that's 2,800 fish at 1,400 per mile, which is what we got out in front of the shop here. So anyway, that's my, that's my answer for, uh, for that question. So uh, another question I got uh, is just general strategies uh, for wintertime fishing. So I've covered uh, a couple of these already, but General strategies uh, for successful wintertime fishing, let's say you haven't fished when it's cold out a lot um, and you're thinking about planning a trip, is look for, um, look at the nighttime lows uh, and take consideration there as much as the daytime highs. Uh, a lot of times you'll have a high, you know, near 40 degrees and that looks great on paper, but if the low is 15, your uh, your fishing is probably not, gonna, it's not going to be as conducive to conditions where you have a high of 35 and a low of 33, you know, where you have cloud cover especially. Um, and I, I don't think I answered this in one of the questions earlier, but when you have cloud cover, especially during the winter time, streamer fishing typically is at a premium, and that can be applied to winter. It can be applied to most times of the year. Uh, and certainly if you have a cloudy summer day, it applies to dry fly fishing. There's usually an enhancement in the dry fly bite. But look for, you know, warmer nighttime lows, uh, comfortable daytime highs. Uh, I like it to get above freezing. I don't prefer to chip ice out of my guides any more than I have to. Um, so look at those conditions. As far as layering systems, I see a lot of a lot of people, and and I say this because I'm an observer. You know, I have an office that's upstairs at Reds. It's where I try to put my head down where I'm at right now, kind of get to work on stuff like this. And 
a lot of the kind of the backdrop of reds that you know might not be fishing or talking to talking to people about fishing but so i get to listen a lot and just be kind of a fly on the wall uh in the shop and listen to people and i've guided for almost 20 years now and just fish in general but people don't prepare very well for the cold um they they don't it, it just seems like they don't set up for comfort make sure you get really good gloves and you bring two sets and i'm just going to kind of ramble through this get two pairs of gloves one's inevitably going to get wet so two pairs of gloves are key make sure one set is a wool half finger glove because that can get wet and it can still maintain some of its warmth after you wring it out get a set of uh mitten uh fold over mittens um sims extreme ones are fantastic uh, we sell them at the pro shop buy from us uh and then as far as your base layer goes some type of slick base layer uh like an under armor type but more of like a kind of a polar like a insulated uh base layer i buy mine at sitka gear i've got their heavyweight uh oh gosh i want to say it's their traverse uh in fact, I'll look it up right now because I absolutely love the Sitka base layer system. Uh, but I've got their heavyweight base layer, and I've got the Merino Wool one, too, from Sitka, but I actually really like the other one for cold weather fishing. And part of the reason I like it is because my gear slides over the top of it pretty good uh, as well. But uh, let me see what this base layer is called. I'll get back to it here in a second. Anyway, it's in their base layer section, and uh, it's the heavy, it's the core heavyweight bottom. That's what you want. It's 100 bucks, and it is an excellent product for winter fishing. Um, next, heavyweight fleece pants. Um, you know, higher loft. Don't wear your sweatpants. Don't wear your Russell Athletic sweats. Throw those damn things away. They're embarrassing, anyways. Uh, get some fleece pants. I wore the Reddington, uh, I think it's IO, um, I'm going to look it up right now because I've had a few sets. Sims makes a really good one, but we got the Reddington pants, uh, those are a heavyweight one. If you have a tendency to get cold and you really want to take fishing serious, get the really heavily insulated ones from Sims. And uh, let me look at the name of those ones because I talked to a couple of guys that had those because they're pretty expensive and I didn't jump on them right away. I've been hanging in there. But the really expensive ones from Sims, uh, the Fjord Pant from Sims is the one I aspire to own. And the Reddington I slash O, I don't know what the heck that stands for, but those are good pant in combination with those heavyweight core bottoms from Sitka. So Sims Fjord fleece pant is like the super duper pant. Uh, so make sure you layer up properly there. Uh, I wear a wading boot with a pretty big toe box uh, because it's a boot foot wader and it's super warm. I can't tell you how important boot foot waders are for winter fishing. And a bigger toe box uh, in some of the boots like the Reddington Prowler has a really big toe box allowing for some loft and airspace. That's a really good product, too. I've had pretty good success with stocking foot waders in that wading boot. But just look at the wading boot that you're buying and make sure it's got a, a toe box that looks more like a snowboarder's boot uh, than it does like a hiking boot because um, you want that airspace, that loft in there. Fit whatever socks you can in there. And if you're just a real sissy, uh, you will get uh, <laughs> heated insoles for your boots. They make this crap. Believe me. I'm not lying. That your heated insoles that you can control through Bluetooth on your phone. We don't sell those. Uh, but you can get those things, and that would certainly help out. My wife was asking about those. That's how I know about them. Uh, anyway, I can't say whether they're effective or not. Uh, as far as your layering system up top, Tight layer up top so the clothes slide over it really well. Um, get some type of super duper insulated jacket over like a hoodie. I really like a hoodie. Uh, I wear either like a poly hoodie. You can get a 509 hoodie from Reds. They're poly. They're sweet. They're great for layering. But I really like that hoodie to pull over as a wind veil. Um, in that mid-layer arena, I wear some Sitka stuff oftentimes because I own a bunch of it. Uh, but I also, uh, I also would endorse pre anything Primaloft, 
Uh, I have some Primaloft clothing, and I'm checking to see if the Sims makes a couple of... Uh, yeah, so that I thought it did. The Sims downstream uh, sweater is of excellent mid-layer, and they have a Sims downstream jacket that's a little bit heavier duty. And those are made with Primaloft gold, which I can't tell you how uh, critical it is to have synthetic insulation anytime you're around extremely cold water. I won't go into a uh, safety lesson on you, but I think it's really critical that you have that synthetic stuff rather than down. I've, I've seen some demonstrations on Primaloft. It doesn't absorb water. You can wring it out, shake it out, dry it out. I wear it for exclusively for all my backcountry hunting stuff. And uh, I should do some podcasts on that someday because I do some pretty extreme uh, mountain weather uh, backcountry hunts. And uh, Primaloft, especially Primaloft gold, is this stuff. On top of that, good wading jacket. That Sam's G4 Pro wading jacket's the best. Get whatever you can afford, but make sure you get a proper wading jacket and learn how to use it. Up top, I wear a Primaloft buff from the buff company. I don't even know if we sell those things, but I love the Primaloft buff. Uh, and then, you know, super duper stocking hat, something to cover your ears. Uh, super duper warm stocking hat. So get prepared properly. Get layered up. Most people don't layer properly. They don't have fun and they don't stay out there. And you should be putting your cognitive effort into how to catch the fish not how cold you are because the cold is a distraction for people. You need to concentrate, you need to fish well, and you need to get the job done and not be distracted with your layers. The layering system I just described is the slickest, smoothest, fastest layering system. So you got on your top, you got a base layer, you got a hoodie, you got a mid layer uh, that's made out of Prima Loft, uh, and then you got your outer layer, um, which is going to be a wading jacket to knock down wind and such. Make sure it's a proper wading jacket so you can cinch the sleeves down tight, waistband down on tight, and zip it up so that if you do take a spill, you don't die. So uh, that's my general. I would say that would fall into general strategies for winter fishing. The other things I would say are uh, New Zealand-style indicators, lighter tippet, and find where the fish are holding, stay on that spot, and stay out to the very end of the day because I've always been shocked how good that time is right before dusk during the winter you're super cold you've been out there all day but stick it out and stay all the way through and then maybe get yourself a jet boil cook yourself up some hot coffee or some hot chocolate at some point during the day so hopefully enjoyed some of those tips let me check and see if I've got any more uh comments looks like that's about it for comments uh anyway thanks for listening i'll try not to have such a long lapse in between the next two and appreciate it and also get on and buy some stuff from us and since you listened all the way to the end i'm going to throw in a promo code that's podcast 12 and you're going to get 10 percent off your entire order and i'm going to throw that coupon code online right now that is podcast 12 do it at checkout 10% off your order. We really appreciate your business.